Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Remember, remember the 5th of October. It's the 5th of October, folks, and that can only mean one thing. It is the 60th anniversary of the Beatles' second single. And we're here to talk about that and many other things that are going on in the Beatle universe because I think people have gone 1962 crazy, Stephen. They have. They have. It's an anniversary, Jason. You're never more than 12 months away from an anniversary. Yes, they come around every year. Uh, And the anniversary that everybody seems to be crazy about is the Love Me Do anniversary. So we thought we would, you know, since it is uh, the 5th of October, we would celebrate the 5th of October because why not um, get on board the good ship 5th of October as everybody else seems to be? But Why not? We're lighting bonfires and... uh... That's that's, that's, that's still a month away. But if, if there is a claim to... What should be International Beatles Day? Would would you claim the 5th of October? I, I had a feeling maybe last year when Get Back came out that Thanksgiving should be relabeled as kind of a Beatles festival. Yes, yes. But if we have to have a public holiday, 5th of October? I think 5th of October is as good a claim as any. Yeah, yeah I think so. Um, and we were talking about this uh, before we were recording, but Love Me Do, um, not really their debut. Go on, you have a theory. <laughs> well, I don't, have a, I, I, I don't have a theory. I just have hard, hard, cold facts. And we do like to occasionally do a bit of debunking. But the reality is Love Me Do was not the first single released in Britain in 1962 that had the Beatles name on it. But was it the first Beatles single? Well, how do you define a Beatles single? Look, of course, from a canon point of view, it is the debut single from the Beatles and it's written by Lennon and McCartney and it deserves all the accolades. It's the opening track on the Beatles one and all the rest. But there was a song, you know, the the, the there was a record that came out in January 1962 that had the Beatles name on it. Not the Beat Brothers, but the actual Beatles with Tony the, Sheridan. The the Beatles. Beatles. <laughs> the Beatles. Well, w- yes, w- 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 this, <laughs> this, this is going to be a long meandering chat because we've kind of had a couple of um, doses of 1962. And, and you know, we kind of, you look at the figures. My Bonnie by um, Tony Sheridan and the Beatles came out as an official UK release on the 5th of January 1962. And this was triggered by the famous story that people wanted it to be bought in Brian Epstein's shop and somebody went in and said, 
you know, do you have this? And so it wasn't just pure imports that, that made it happen, but there was a Polydor UK single that came out in January 62 with the Beatles name on it. And yeah. I find that interesting that, you know, it didn't really, obviously it didn't register and it wasn't a big hit or nobody really paid attention until after the Beatles became the Beatles. But it's often something that, it's kind of seen as an anomaly that it happened in Germany, it happened far away, but it, it was a, a genuine UK release, my bunny. It was, so we should be saying, remember, remember the 5th of January is the... Uh, <laughs> well... You're, 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 saying, you're saying that's, that's International Beatle Day is the 5th of January. Well, yeah, it's, it's sort of the 11th day of Christmas as well, so, you know, it... it um, it would uh, it would be a good 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 way to to slot in a Beatles bit of Beatles celebration uh, over the over the New Year's and Christmas period. Well, there's only, it, there's only one yeah. problem. There is only yes. one one problem. Okay, what is the one problem? It's not very good. Well, <laughs> yes, that is true. It is not very good. Although it is, it does exist nowadays on Anthology One. It is, an, you know, so it's an official part. You could say it's an official part of the Beatles canon. That way, you can go and buy a Beatles album with it on. I shall never be saying that, Jason. No, okay, fine. I'd rather um, say I'd rather say that goodbye was uh, <laughs> part of the official canon. Well, so love me do uh, is sixty years old today. That is the the reality of it. But uh, th- there's a couple of things that we want to talk about related to to 1962 that are that are going on, and just to join in the general celebration of it was sixty years ago today. Uh, oh my goodness, and. You know, 60 years before that was 1902, so I don't really know if any of the kids of 1962 were bopping to any of the hot sounds of 1902. Probably not. Probably not. Probably um, pro- not. No, but uh, the first thing we want to talk about is that we were lucky enough to get a uh, a seat to see um, Mark Lewison's latest Evolver show in London a yes. few weeks ago, and it's playing in London this weekend. And the whole theme of this show is to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Beatles Entering the public sphere is, you know, and, and, and the release of Love Me Do. And it's, if if, if people are listening to this before, uh, you know, if you, obviously people listen to this on the day it goes out, um, you should try and get your tickets to Mark Lewis and ASAP because there are still some seats left. He's only doing shows in London. But I thought it was an excellent show. What did you think? I thought it was an excellent show. And mm. absolutely, I would recommend that you go and see it. Um, it was incredibly entertaining. I learned. Yeah. I learned. I learned a lot. Do we know everything about the Beatles? No, we don't. <laughs> no, we, um, you know, we you should have stolen don't. that line. Yes, you um, all think you know the Beatles. You don't. Yeah, but uh, it, it was, it, and it was very well uh, put together. I mean, not giving anything away, but he references individual sort of items and artifacts throughout the show to tell the story, and it's very, very engaging uh, story, and lots of lots of new information. I mean, it's really, I suppose, information that is largely in tune-in, but yes. he's refined it and expanded upon it. And in a couple of cases, he's adding new information into that and sort of qualifying or expanding on what he said in the book. So, uh, Yeah, and I, we don't want to give away the show. We want people to go and see the show. But it's uh, it celebrates, the show is called Evolver, you know, 1962. And I very much subscribe to Mark's theory that the Beatles in 1962 were just as interesting and as exciting as the Beatles of 1969 in Get Back. They were always interesting and exciting. Yeah. We just didn't have the coverage in 1962 or 61 or 63 that we had when, you know, when they pointed the cameras in, in January 1969. So his notion that these four guys are fascinating, no matter what year it is, 
is is really interesting. And you know, 1962, what what he really delivers, I thought, across the show was how busy they were, and he really gave a sense of their momentum. Yes, yes, uh, that the fact that Epstein is on board and there is a very deliberate drive. Mm. You, you know, there, there is an ambition there. Um, you get a sense that prior to 1962, there was an element of drift. You know, he talks about this in Tune In, that, you know, they were considering their future. They were, you know, there were various points at which they might have broken up, at which Paul might have decided to go and be an English teacher or wind coils uh, for a living. Um, <laughs> wind coils, I, he's the lead singer of uh, The Flaming Lips. Yes, I believe so. Terrible, terrible band. Joke. Um, terrible joke. Um, <laughs> terrible joke, terrible band. And, I love um, the Flaming Lips, but that's not a surprise. No, that is definitely not a surprise. Yeah. So we can, anybody that's seen your hair can realise you're, <laughs> yes, you're, you're turning into you're wind coils. Some, some, some sort of uh, tribute <laughs> uh, hairdo. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's the fact that they... That, that that they there is a drive uh, to to forward as you say it's it's momentum and um, that comes across. Uh, this is the next step, and there's a, there's much more focus to what they're doing where there had been a bit of drift before that. And the big thing that's changed, obviously, is they have a manager and uh, yeah, he, he's he's setting targets, and his role comes across very clearly in the show that Mark is doing. I I think you're absolutely right now, and we're not going to put spoilers out to the show, but. He, he basically tells a chronological tale of 1962 in 62 mm. items. And you know, they, they cover various forms. We're not going to tell you what they were, but he uses each one as a springboard into a, you know, 62 different parts of the story. And, you know, you kind of think, is there, you know, 62 things? Yes, there are. He is very, yeah. very good at doing that thing that he does where he, you know, starts off at one point, looks at it from a certain direction and then, you know, makes you realize something else. Um, but, you know, the, the main arc of the show, you know, the, you know, starts with the 1st of January and we all know the 1st of January is DECA audition day. That's famously it. And you kind of think of the year, you know, that's how they started on the 1st of January 62 and they end on the 31st of December uh, 1962. They've got Love Me Do in the charts. They're signed to EMI Parlophone. They are on the up and none of it happens by accident you know that's what's interesting there are happy accidents yes but the plan is always you know to get a record contract to get a record out and the 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 it's a very maybe obvious thing to notice but the uh the thing mark lewison does talk about is that you know the beatles had lit a fire in liverpool and he wanted brian realized that you know if you could get those fires to light up around the country and then join together that's what you wanted to do. And you do forget that by January 1962, the Beatles were huge in Liverpool. They, you know, Mersey yes. beat Pole and all that kind of stuff. Yes, I mean, I think that that's one of the analogies he uses, which is sort of you start little fires elsewhere outside the Liverpool area, and then eventually they sort of take over the country. So there was a, what came across for me was that very deliberate design mm. that, 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 that almost like a military campaign. Um, yeah, you you know, how they were moving forward. And uh, uh, the other thing is it's an incredibly entertaining show. You know, I thought, well, yes. there is a danger that this type of thing descends into, and then they did this, and then they did that, or here's an interesting object. But it was fascinating, and it rattled along at pace. 
It did. Um, it, it, it's also not a spoiler to say that it's it's in two halves and each half is 62 minutes long, it's, which is a, it, a very it, high concept for a show about 62. Yeah, I have to say it was very well put together and I wasn't quite sure what to expect and I thought it was going to be more in, in the, the nature of a lecture or a talk. Yeah. But it's actually an entertainment as well. I mean, it's 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 it was very enjoyable, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, I mean, um, Mark's other show, Hornsey Road, which you know celebrated Abbey Road, and um, which he which he toured in twenty nineteen, you know, was a great show. But it, that was I felt it didn't have the uh, that was more kind of lectury. But this kind of sixty two yeah. show I felt had a real it had real twists and turns, and I wasn't really yeah. knowing what he was going to present us with next, and uh, so it was an absolute pleasure to be there and if you can get a chance to get to it this weekend uh, go and see it i think there's talk that i don't know whether he wants to record it or try and get it uh, to people in some form in the future hopefully it's not going to disappear into the ether he he did he did mention that and he was saying he's torn between you know you want to do the show and get it out to people but it is a distraction from that other thing that he's doing <laughs> um, well <laughs> he came out at the start of the show because this was um you know, myself and Stephen, we're we're still you know bemused by the novelty of getting a media invite. Well, yes. <laughs> I certainly, well, yeah. I certainly yes, was like, yes, oh, this is, this is this is very quaint. I know you know this is some people's full time jobs, but to get a media invite and he came out and said a few words beforehand, and he basically um, started by saying something like, "Yeah, I'm working on it. No, I don't know when it's coming out." That's kind of how he opened the afternoon, yeah. and then at the end of the afternoon. Somebody who obviously had arrived late when there was a Q&A put up their hand and went, can I ask when's the book being done? And everyone's like, boo. <laughs> so I, I, I think I, I feel so sorry for him because it's the, it's the question that, um, that sort of hangs over his head so much. Well, it's like, you know, will you get back together again? Will the Beatles get back together again? It's just like that. You know, the question yeah, that it, it, hangs over right. every interview. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't ask him that when he came on the podcast. We very deliberately didn't ask him that. No, I mean, I think it's it's just one of those things where he just doesn't need to be asked. I'm sure if he could press a button, wave a magic wand, whatever, he'd publish the book tomorrow. Um, but you know, he 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 did also allude in the Q and A afterwards that yeah, there's information coming in about 1962. Of course, he'd like to rewrite tune in (laughs) so as long as he doesn't say i'm going to rewrite tune in and then work on volume two that would be that would be a a worry but yeah evolver 62 mark lewison's show is in the bloomsbury theater in london uh this weekend in october if you're listening to us on international beatles day the 5th of october and uh we thoroughly recommend it and enjoy it and it was um nice to see mark again and he's you know he's he knows his stuff he does. He does. He's, I think he, de- he 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 demonstrated that sixty-two times during the course did, of the day. He, he did, and um, I can't remember. There was one person in the audience who sort of had that. I think you'll find tone to their question. Yes, I think you'll find, yes. and uh, he was very like, no, I don't think so. So um, yes, good old good old, old Mark Lewis, and that's Evolver nineteen sixty-two. Um, one of the key events of nineteen sixty-two that he talks about is Pete Best. Yes, and uh, one of us has met Pete Best recently. Yes, well, he's now my close personal friend. Um, I, I don't know, <laughs> but I did post the picture up on the, 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 the socials, the Nothing Is Real socials. He did a, a, a public speaking event in Dublin. A f- yes, and can I say, I, I put that uh, photograph up on the Facebook group. It, yes. got, it got more likes than any other post I've ever put up on the Facebook group. 
well. And that's um, Stephen's telling me this because obviously I I I, I despise Facebook. <laughs> I stay away from Facebook uh, because it's it's. Uh, but I I I got a lot of nods on Twitter. I I. I funnel my addiction into twitter that's where that's where my online addiction lies I, um I, it was, I know you only it was, do, you only do it you only do it for the likes <laughs> i know you only do it i yes um, like and subscribe and all the rest i i have to admit it was it was very um unfortunately you you couldn't make it down but it was a very charming show for pete to kind of tell his story and this was a show that was announced originally at the end of 2019 yes. and has been postponed due to uh, you heard about this thing covid it's been postponed due to covid and uh, eventually it happened two and a half years later than it was uh, supposed to but it was a, a a packed house in in lost lane and the format is that uh, rogue best another friend of the show um interviews Pete in as much as it's a, you know, a planned kind of staged conversation. So, you know, and then your mum bought a house. Would you like to tell us about that? And Pete would talk about the house and and all that kind of stuff. So there were some uh, bits of the story that you knew, some bits that you didn't know, but there's no denying the fact, (laughs) this sounds very stupid, that he was there for two years in the Beatles. And, you know, he he was in the room when it happened. He was in the room when it happened. It was, it was you know, I wasn't there, but it was whenever we were talking to Howie Casey earlier in the year. Yeah. And, and he suddenly said, well, yes, you know, Stuart Sutcliffe said this or Stuart Sutcliffe did that. And you suddenly thought, I'm talking to somebody that knew Stuart Sutcliffe. Yeah. You know, that the, the sort of was in the room, was in that sort of environment when all those things were happening that, that, that has first-hand interaction with the key players. And, uh, you know, one step closer, Pete Best was a key player up to yeah. 1962. Uh, uh, and Howie Casey got a, a shout-out on, on Pete's show because, you know, Pete recounts, you know, arriving in um, in Hamburg and, you know, that, you know, they have beaten him. They've beaten the Beatles to mm. Liverpool, uh, from Liverpool to Hamburg already. And he sees Howie Casey um, playing on stage uh, with Derry and the Seniors, and he, you know, he watches that band. And he, uh, so you're, you know, you're, you're thinking he's there, and he's also recounting, you know, arriving in Hamburg for his last trip, the Beatles' second last trip, and finding out that Stuart had died. You know, finding out on the yeah. runway. So, you know, he's he's a guy who was there. Um, I guess the tricky part of the Pete Best story is Pete Best leaving the Beatles. And that is a perspective that changes depending on who you ask, he said, politically. (laughs) And and how did he he handle that? Or how did Rogue handle that? Did did, did you say, and then you got a phone call and... That's more or less it. It's kind of like they, you know, um, you know, Pete's recounting the story chronologically. He's recounting, you know, the the session that he's at in June '62 for "Love Me Do," and uh, you know, and Rogue says, so this it's kind of alluded to, like, well, you know, we all know what's going to happen. You know, it's yeah, just like, oh, yeah. I, I bet this guy had a fine career with this band that were up and coming. You know, we all know the elephant in the studio is that. Um, you know, he's leaving. So he says, you know, so, so I think Rogue said it up along the lines of, but then you had the meeting with Brian, you know, tell us about that. And so he recounts it and he still recounts, you know, that he had no idea mm. that this was coming, no idea it was going to happen totally out of the blue. And, um, but he still attests that it was nothing to do with skills 
you know, yeah. that it was to do, that he was as good a drummer as Ringo Starr, that he was a great drummer. He even said at one point, you know, that um, it was on the horizon that they'd be going back to Abbey Road. This is this is how he framed it, to, to do Love Me Do Again, but that there'd be a, a session drummer and that, you know, he had been kind of told by George Martin that Abbey Road just couldn't capture the thundering sound of his drums. And so that was the reason why... <laughs> that was the reason why a, uh, a you know a session drummer was due to be planned, even though the next session didn't have a session drummer. Didn't have a session, session after yeah. that. Um, so so that's how he recounts it. So uh, you know it's it's such a it's 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 such a difficult thing because um, you know thinking about it afterwards, you know my take on it was that the Beatles created so many archetypes in popular culture, mm. particularly for bands, but in other forms of entertainment. Um, that we still follow today. So we say, oh, that record is their Sgt. Pepper. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or this person is, you know, the 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 malevolent influence. You know, I don't want to I don't want to blame Yoko for anything, but Yoko sometimes used yes. as an archetypal yeah. shorthand. And um, but Pete Best is also one of these archetypes. He is the archetype for the person who missed out he who who just didn't left quite uh, yes yes who just didn't quite make it and so it's 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 um it's it's a bit like this is a very odd reference the the movie kingpin where they invent the name munson for people who are you know we've been munson in the middle of nowhere it's where you you know you get this name for yourself for the circumstances are personally very difficult to deal with but that is his point in history he is a Pete Best and other groups have their Pete Bests who leave the story at a certain key point in time and they don't get to see the the glory, mm. you know. Yeah, and was he was he was he well received? You know, was, was oh, he yeah. getting a he was getting a, a sympathetic. He, I thought the audience were really sympathetic, really interested, and it was it was very like the the setup of the show is there was about a seventy minute back and forth. Um, between Rogue and, and Pete, as I said, you know, it was kind of half-scripted, prepped. Mm. That, that's absolutely fine. You know, you, you heard what you wanted to hear. And then there was a small intermission. I um, went upstairs and Pete was kind of sitting on his own. There was a couple of people milling around, so I just sat down and introduced myself. And because we'd spoken on our little promo episode that we put out, and um, he, uh, you know, he was chatting for about three minutes and I just asked him very straightforward questions because in my mind I'm like... Be cool, you know. <laughs> yeah. He's a very straightforward. It is a Beatle. I'm sitting on a sofa. <laughs> he's a straightforward, unassuming guy. Very lovely. But you're kind of like, this is this is very unusual <laughs> that he's just sitting there. And he was very nice and very decent and got that lovely picture and uh, shook his hand. And then there was a kind of a 45-minute Q&A. And, um, you know, he, he, he was actually, it was very interesting, the Q&A. He was... You know, he's, he's quite funny. He's got a bit of scouse in him and he's, you know, very laid back. So there was one or two questions where he'd, you know, kind of get the crowd on his side with this kind of tone of, what the hell are you asking me? Like somebody asked him in a very roundabout way, you know, what was his favourite, you know, what's his favourite drumming on any Beatles song? And he starts saying, well, one of mine or one of Ringo's? And they're like, well, one of each. He says, well, I'm not going to choose one of Ringo's, you know, no. you idiot. <laughs> the crowd were kind of on his side going, yeah, like, that's a stupid question to ask Pete Best. So it was it was all very lovely. And uh, but, you know, there's this there's this issue of, you know, he he left the as, as George says in anthology, you know, Ringo was a Beatle. He just didn't enter until mm. that part of the movie. And history attests to that you know the other thing i realized is you know we've got everybody has sliding doors moments in their life all the yes. time 
and 99.9% of the time, you don't know what the alternate is. Yes, so he yes. is in the unfortunate position of seeing the alternate version of his life play out on the yes. grandest scale imaginable. And yes. the Beatles has caused people lots of madness in trying to deal with it personally. And, you know, seeing that probably was very, very difficult for a long period of time. I, I feel like he's made his peace and he's mm. claiming his part in it. And as I said, he was there for two years. He was the man. Um, why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't he? And I, I, I do think it's something that you mentioned with Rogue. I mean, I do think it's good that uh, the best family, not not just Pete, but, uh, you know, uh, Rogue and, and, and their mother, that that part of the story is being retold. And I suppose we're as guilty as anybody of ignoring, when I say we, I mean the podcast is as guilty as, uh, as anyone, of ignoring that early 1960s Hamburg pre-Love yeah. Me Do, um, yeah. pre-My Bonnie. Did he talk about uh, the my, my Bonnie session at all? Um, he did, Jay. He talked about My Bonnie being recorded in the big hall and he talked about Bert Camfort. Um, and <laughs> and you know record and you know recording with Tony Sheridan. Um, yeah, so he covered all of that. So because mm. he said, you know, this is going to be the Beatles' first single of 1962, and it's not going to be "Love Me Do." No, he didn't say that. But he um, uh, no, he talked about that recording session and recording my Bonnie, and you know how Bert Camfort kind of um, you know set all of this up, and mm. um, they were. He told the story that they were. The, the Beat Brothers, because they couldn't call themselves the Beatles because of Pedals, which is a German slang for the the male appendage. Um, it's very, so to- very, very medical of you there. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm I'm very vague, and he uh, so he, so he told all of that, and um, but he sort of told in the frame of the in the frame of well, we were just happy to get a mm. record and get get recording and get it out. He sort of said, oh, we thought we'd be in a big recording studio, but we weren't. We were just in this school hall so he did mm. he did talk about um that and how you know that's the the single that led brian to the beatles and all the rest so he did he did cover that as well you know very good very good yeah well and and, um, and he he's now your close personal showbiz he, friend he, he, and he uh, is now my close personal showbiz friend and um it's uh did you get a nice invite to liverpool or not yet. I, I unfortunately I had to run off at the end. I didn't get chatting to Rogue himself um, uh, at the time. Um, for I had to run off for other very important rock and roll reasons, <laughs> which maybe I won't go into here. Um, but uh, the other kind of thought that I had when I was thinking about it in the following days was, you know, this notion that he did not know Brian was going to fire him, right? Mm. And I kind of thought there's no version of events where. Um, any other Beatle was going to be fired. That's kind of what I... I don't know if this makes sense, but there was no version of events where John, Paul and Pete were going to fire George. No. Or John, George and Pete were going to fire Paul or Paul, George, Pete were going to fire John. No. The firing um, of it, uh, of, of Pete, the schism of John, Paul, George and Pete... I, I, I don't want to say it makes sense, but it wasn't going to, that was no, it, the way it was going to be. No, it wasn't going to divide up any other way. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things that I've, I've been rereading or rather re-listening uh, to, to tune in the, uh, the audiobook, and uh, one of the things that really comes across is the fact that Pete almost sort of isolated himself from the yep. other three. You, you know, so 
uh, the sort of first-hand accounts of people in Hamburg, but also first-hand accounts of fans in um, in Liverpool, and they're sort of saying, "Oh well, you know, the other three hung about together. They you could see them sitting in the bar before a show or after a show, but you never saw Pete socialising with them at all." And that wasn't yeah. just a, not not just a Hamburg phenomenon, but actually in Liverpool as well. Um, Pete went with them to 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 NAMS to listen to records because he had to learn the, the parts. Songs. But the choosing of the songs, you know, the the obscure B sides that the American import records that they were learning that they wanted to put into their set list, that was all down to the other three. Yeah, um, and he was there because he had to be there. But but. So, yeah. so the, that that sort of divide was almost something that he he seemed to either create or not really take steps to cure. Yeah, and he he does tell us part of the story that you know when his mom Mona was opening the Casbah, you know the Beatles were ended up being the band mm. that opened the Casbah. The Beatles being John Paul and George, not Pete. Yes, um, yes. and then they have this row with Mona after a number of weeks because um uh it's just escaped me the the fourth guy is is running Didn't, the door d- doesn't doesn't turn up yeah uh and she goes she says well we have to pay everybody and she goes to pay the guy that didn't turn up and he's he's running the door because he feels yeah. sick that was the story yeah. and um and john paul and george are like screw you we did the playing we should split the money three ways not four off we go was it Chaz newbie uh we should be prepared for this anyway um and so pete doesn't enter them the band as a drummer until you know sometime mm. later so obviously there's the john paul george dynamic and you, you know part of the story is you know pete comes in because they need the drummer for for hamburg but it was hearing pete talk you know he's still telling stories that he's there in the room he sort of talks that he was kind of most pally with mccartney or he'd be the, that'd be the person mm. who he'd bunk with or who he'd share with and um but, you know, he does, you know, he's very clear in saying, well, he didn't do prellies and he wasn't doing any of those yeah. kind of things. And he was like, he talked about that at the time because somebody asked him a, a Q&A about prellies. And uh, so, and I'm aware, as you say, in the Lewison book, there is this notion that Pete kind of sets himself apart. And I'm always very wary that that's just not, you know, looking backwards, you know, the retrospectoscope. Well, it was obvious looking back, but... Again, you know, if you cut that cake any other way, you know, Pete and John and Paul weren't going to kick out George. That just was not the, no. the, the you know, there. it made sense that that schism was where it was, um, I think. But, you know, an interesting guy, a fascinating story, very charming. And as you say, the, the wider best story with Mona and the Casbah and, you know, Rogue and Neil Aspinall and all the rest. It's, um, you know, they're an essential part of the, the picture. It's not just... Pete's story. It's a best family story, and that's where it gets really uh, interesting. Yeah, I think so. It's 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 the family story. Is the uh, is uh, so when when we get invited to the uh, you know, <laughs> to Liverpool and the museum, and when those invitations start arriving, then we can pick up and cover all of that. Absolutely. Um, but you know, speaking of their debut single of nineteen sixty two, my Bonnie, they did record in Germany on the twenty second of June sixty one, and it was released in Germany on the twenty third of October sixty one. So it's actually coming up on the sixty first anniversary of the, the Beatles' debut single. Um, 
But, you know, it did come out in the UK on uh, January the 5th, 1962, with a Polydor UK release. So that was same week that they're auditioning for Decca and slowly being turned down and that they're starting to gig, that this single comes out. And I, I never really got a sense that Brian and the Beatles were particularly aware that the UK release was happening of that single. No, I mean, you, you, you hear George sort of, George is quite keen on that song initially, at least in the early days, and he says, "Oh, it was quite a thing to hear it." And and uh, but but uh, Lennon doesn't like it. But yeah. no, there's no sense that uh, you know they're they're recording in in Decca, suddenly aware that this is about to to come out. But they're they're actually signed to Bert Kampfert at this point. This this yes. is the point. There is a contract in Germany. Um, that Brian then has to get translated, and they have to and uh, sort of the outworkings of that. So, and by all accounts, you know, Bert Camfort was quite uh, not necessarily happy to, to to see them go, but he certainly facilitated uh, the transfer. He was pretty magnanimous. He didn't yeah. really yeah, yeah. throw any spanners in the works about letting them uh, letting them off the label. But it, it is also curious that. Brian um, is trying to get them a proper UK recording contract mm. that, you know, he, he doesn't have copies of My Bonnie. To see. He obviously feels that My Bonnie isn't necessarily indicative of what he wants them to be or how they're going to record. You know, they're not auditioning with it. So it, it kind of disappears into the into the background instead of him having, you know, saying, well, look, these are my boys. Oh, and by the way, look, they have this thing called My Bonnie that they recorded yeah. as well. So they're already... I suppose to a degree, yeah. But I mean, I suppose the thing is, it, it it it's like I said, it's not indicative of what they were doing, or, or you know, the the key one of the key things about the Beatles is the is the vocal aspect. You know, yep. John, Paul, George, the harmonies, they're just not there, or not in not in a recognizable Beatles yes. sound. So it's not uh, it's not in any way I think representative of even what they were doing. At the, at the Deco audition. No, I think you're totally right. There's like, you know, my Bonnie could have been played by any band, basically. Yeah. And Lewison does talk about this in his show that the Beatles notionally were potentially going to be a studio band or a general backing band. Yes. Um, but there, there's no way you listen to my Bonnie and you can hear echoes of anything that they're about to do. It's pretty anonymous. It's competent, it but anonymous. It is. And and, and it's, a, it's a weird, I mean, it's a weird choice of a song. You know, it's it's a kind of traditional folk song. It's the kind of thing you learn, you know, whenever you're at primary school and you're all learning to play the recorder. And it, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's a, and and I suppose it's what it's kind of sailory, mm. sea shanty type. It would have been great during lockdown. They should have released it during lockdown. You know, when sea it's shanties a bit like were big. Thin Lizzy's whiskey in the jar. In yes. a way, yes. it's just a sort of song shoehorned into a form that it's not really belonging yeah. in yeah and it has um, a certain charm i suppose well i wouldn't even go that far i have okay. to say I, I mean i remember the disappointment of buying the repackaged the beatles featuring tony sheridan yeah. uh, and, yeah. and, and and it was just awful terrible <laughs> it, it's i mean i think the point is it sounds like something that was recorded before the beatles changed everything Yes. If that makes sense. You know, that this, this, this could have been recorded at any point from sort of 1958 to 1962. And it, it's everything that the Beatles swept away. The whole sort of, we talked before about, you know, Al McCogan and 
Helen Shapiro and people like that, whose careers just came shuddering to a halt when the Beatles <laughs> arrived. And this is this is like that. This is what it sounds like. Uh, yep. it, you know, it's a it's a an all round entertainment type. Well, it once thing. again shows. Um, a band is only as good as its drummer. You know, Ringo hadn't entered the film, as George says, and maybe that's what they were waiting for. You know, that final piece of the puzzle. It never made that. Never made their set list. You know, nobody was ever. Nobody was ever yelling at Shea Stadium asking for them to play my pony. <laughs> for my pony. That'd be, that'd I, I, be quite. That, that would be funny. I mean, I think. It, I, well, even even like they 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 did return to Besame Mucho many times over the years. You yes. Know? Deca auditions and um, Let It Be sessions and Paul playing at solo years, you know, but never my Bonnie. It's just wasn't their thing, really. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think it is that comment from John Lennon in 1963 where he says it's just Tony Sheridan singing with us banging in the background. It's terrible. It could be anybody, <laughs> and I think that's as good an assessment as any. And I refuse to accept it as the first uh, Beatles single. Thank you. Okay. So fine. So the first Beatles single then is "Love Me Do." Is is that yes. over? Is that? Yes. Do we really? Fine. If you've, if you say so. End of part one. Intermission. End of intermission. Part two. Love Me Do is sixty years old today. It's also the thirty-second anniversary, more or less, of P.S. Love Me Do, the nineteen ninety Paul McCartney B-side. But maybe we won't mention that. It's odd that P.S. Love Me Do is closer to Love Me Do than we are to P.S. Love Me Do. It's messing with my head now. <laughs> Immortality maths, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but Love Me Do, as their debut single, has this kind of storied background of, you know, they are trying to get onto EMI. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And part of the deal is, you know, prepare songs, get songs ready. And they have this song that's been hanging around for years. I think Lennon says it's a, a Paul song originally. Um, yes. And it's yes. Love Me Do. Yeah, so there, there's, there's a bit of a discrepancy here where Lennon says, oh, you know, definitely a Paul song. Paul is saying, oh, it's a 50-50, 50-50 song. Um, and I think that reflects the fact that it's been kicking around for so long. So supposedly Paul writes it in when he was 16, you know, as you do. Right, sure. Fair enough. Number one U.S. single when you're 16, um, but but uh, yeah. and it it is in the it is in the set list and it is kicking around. But they they have to sort of retool it mm. uh, when they're in Hamburg. So the story is that they get uh, a telegram from Brian 
on the 9th of May 1962 saying, uh, we've got a recording contract, uh, rehearse new material. And they think, we have to write some new songs. So they go back back to Love Me Do and they sort of rework it and they turn it into a more bluesy thing. And this seems to be where Paul has the notion, this is where it becomes a 50-50 co-write. Yeah. And part of it is this harmonica that John brings to it. Um, uh, I think there was yes. um, "Hey Baby," the the Bruce Channel Chanel Channel Chanel. Um, I always thought it was Chanel. Ch- Chanel, good part. Um, you know, made his money in perfume. I think is <laughs> and black dresses. Um, they that had a harmonica, so they thought we will use a harmonica. So we might think of the harmonica in "Love Me Do" as a, you know, just kind of a nice addition, but it. Even the harmonica and Love Me Do is a very small early indication that they wanted to have a little something different in each record, put something new in, that kind of thing. That's it. I, I love that. I hadn't seen this quote before, but this Paul said, uh, John expected to be in jail one day and he'd be the guy who played the harmonica. <laughs> that's that's Bless. a w- weird um, thing. So, so yeah, but the, everybody has an input into this. Well, Paul and John and Pete have an input into the arrangement. So Pete comes up well, with a key a key element of this retooling of the song. Yes, and I'm sure it's a key element of the retooling that he comes to regret because he thinks that, oh, there should be like a, I think he calls it like a skip beat in the, the middle section, yes. someone to love section of the song um, to make it a little bit different. So he's adding his own arrangement flourishes to the, yes. to the track. And uh, yes, as you say, this this may be something he comes to regret. Well, Pete is still in the band at this point, so if we're having a bit of an overview of all these kind of interconnected things of 1962, Mm. when they wander into the studio on the 6th of June 1962, it's uh, John, Paul, George and Pete in Studio 3 for a two-hour session, um, and they record um, Pesame Mucho and they record um, Love Me Do, the skip beat version with Pete on drums that we now know from Anthology 1. Yes, because this this was assumed to have been lost, uh, th- this initial version. And uh, then it pops up on Anthology 1 and we get to hear the skip beat in all its uh, skippiness. Yes. Um, I, it's, it's, it's wonky. I think we have touched it's, upon this before. It is, it, is pretty, it is pretty wonky. But to be fair to Pete, it's, yep. the whole arrangement is, is wonky. That is true. Yes, it, you know, it's, sort it's, of, it's a very yeah. awkward. It's a very awkward transition in and out of that sort of double time skip beat. Well, we say I, I don't know what the. I mean, I'm saying skip beat because that's what Pete calls it. But it's a very awkward, and maybe it's just it's just awkward because you know the the the, the final version, and or it's it, just it's just awkward. I think it's awkward. It's kind of gauche. It mm. it does not. It, it's one thing if the, the actual beat is a bit all over the place, but it actually, the tempo changes. You yes. know, if, if, if he'd kept, if the tempo had stayed the same, you might get away with it. But the tempo is not consistent, switching from the different sections of the song. And Ringo is, to, to paraphrase one of my favourite Ringoisms. you know, when Jeff Lynne asked him to play along to a click track, Ringo said... I'm the fucking click. So Ringo yeah. is a rock solid metronome of a human being, um, yes. as far as I'm concerned. 
Ringo will be pleased to hear that. <laughs> well, no, I mean... You, no, you I know do what you hear, mean. You do hear failed takes with Ringo. And uh, the, the, first of all, Beatle takes very rarely break down because of something Ringo did. I yes. can't really think of any any immediate outtakes where Ringo made the mistake. No. Um, he, he generally is the guy that, that keeps it all together. It's usually one of the other three that, that makes the mistake. And, you know, even if something is kind of going off the rails, if Ringo's on drums, it's not going out of time. This version of Love Me Do does not keep its tempo. No. And it's impossible to ignore. I mean, it, it, it draws attention to itself. It stands up and screams, you know, look at me, look at me. I'm, I'm doing this weird thing in the middle of a song uh, yeah. that I shouldn't, I shouldn't be here. Um, but it's the harmonica that seems to trigger the interest. And, they, the, you know, George Martin is summoned from the canteen and he comes down and starts rearranging the, the vocal arrangements, famously, John was having to play the harmonica part and sing the lovely yeah. do part. And he said, George Martin says, uh, Paul should sing that. Yeah. And, you have to sing uh, the love me do. Yes. And uh, we Paul tells this story in concert. We heard him <laughs> he uh, say, explain this in concert in uh, 2018. And then I heard him explain it again uh, <laughs> The following Twice week. the following the, <laughs> the following year in exactly the same terms. But he yes, he play you know, Paul plays Love Me Do in uh in, in his current set list. He did did he play that at Glastonbury? I cannot remember. because uh, so long so ago. So long so long ago. Um I think he did. I and I'd have to check it. Obviously if we had notes we would know. Um but the um the whole point of this session though is that they, they don't get their single recorded. And um, this is the session that is sold to the Beatles as query. It's like an audition, but the reality is they are actually signed yes, to yes. EMI Parlophone at the time. It's a, it's a done deal, and part of it is to do with the publishing um, mm. with Ardmore and Beechwood for for Love Me Do. But the next session that's arranged is for September the fourth, nineteen sixty two. Now here's where some stories diverge a little bit because. What has happened in the third week of August 1962 is Pete is out and Ringo is in. Yep. You know, Ringo never, Pete best forever, all that kind of stuff. Um, that happens. And very quickly, the you know, the thing I always love about the Beatles stories is all the kind of funny little happenstances of timing. That it's within a week of Ringo joining that they record the Some Other Guy footage in mm. the cavern. Yes. Like if they'd recorded that a week earlier, it would have been Pete on the drums. But we don't really have any moving footage of Pete drumming with the Beatles at all. So yeah. the, the, the the filmed footage arrives just as Ringo arrives and they turn into this other thing. Um, but it's September the 4th, 62. And George Martin, apparently this is the first he knows that Pete Best has been replaced um, I think Pete was kind of intimating that he had spoken to George after getting fired from the Beatles. And I think that's contentious as to whether or not they had any big heart-to-hearts as to what was yes. going on. But George Martin claims that when Ringo rocks up on the 4th of September, they have no idea that Pete Best has been fired. Yes, yeah, so he, he's expecting the, the same lineup as before. Um, so he, he, he doesn't know that they have a new drummer. He doesn't know who the new drummer is and he doesn't know how good or bad the new drummer is. Um, so, of course, in the meantime, he has given them how do you do it uh, to, yeah. to work up. And, you know, they don't like this song, but they change it around. They work up an arrangement and they record two takes of how do you do it. 
Um, then once they've got that out of the way, because that is going to be the single, then they start recording what is now the B-side, Love Me Do. Yeah. And in fairness to the Beatles, you know, they give How would you How Do You Do It a decent shot. You know, it's a song that's been sent mm. to them in advance and they're willing to try it. Written by Mitch Murray. Uh, Mitch Murray is still alive. He is 82 years of age. He's still going strong. He wrote... Um, after writing How Do You Do It and How Do You Do It eventually became a hit for Jerry and the Pacemakers. He he wrote them I Like It and You Were Made For Me for Freddie and the Dreamers and a couple of other songs uh, Bond of Bonnie and Clyde for Georgie Fame Avenues and Alleyways for Tony Christie. But oh, then that's, he kind a, of, that's a great song. That's a great that song. I, didn't, a, I did not know, did you not he, know wrote he wrote that. that. No, I did not know he wrote that song. I, I, I love that song. And um, and a couple of things. But he hasn't really... Um, he, he kind of... Um, moved away from songwriting after the 60s and became apparently a you know noted public speech speaker expert and speech writer and all the rest so he's still doing well and he lives on the Isle of Man so that's the sign of somebody who's done well I think so I think so it's my it's my ambition to to uh to, to move to the Isle of Man now that they've obviously brought back the 45% tax rate you know that's that's, <laughs> that's more, more incentive uh, to move to the Isle of Man <laughs> That's where Nothing Is Real Inc. is set up, is it? Yeah, Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so so they, they give How Do You Do It a, a try, but they want to, you know, get Love Me Do um, recorded. And this is still Ringo, and but it's still not right, isn't it? This is where the, the notion comes in that they want to do one more go with a session drummer. Yes, yes. Um, so, uh, as a Ringo basically says, you know, he was trying to drum while holding maracas, while holding a tambourine, <laughs> while trying to do everything. You know, he was he, he, he not being in a studio environment before. He was sort of overcompensating. That's probably the, the best way to yes. say it. And, um, you know, I think there are various accounts that it was just the weirdest thing. And he really just was not comfortable and was... Uh, no, and, you know, Ringo, even though the other Beatles had had a handful of sessions, you know, they'd been to Decca, they'd had one session in Abbey Road, Ringo, two weeks earlier, wasn't even in the Beatles. And now, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's a very different set of skills you need to be a studio musician instead of, you know, getting the punters to shake a tail feather on the floor at Butlin's Holiday Camp for Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. So I think, you know, he was trying to use that kind of showman side of himself on yes. his first day in Abbey Road. Yes. So what he says is, on my first visit in September, uh, which was September the 4th, we ran through some tracks for George Martin. We even did Please Please Me. I remember that because while we were recording it, I was playing the bass drum with a maraca in one hand and a tambourine in the other. <laughs> I think it's because of that that George Martin used Andy White, the professional, when we d- went down a week later to record Love Me Do. The guy was previously booked anyway because of Pete Best. So we've got, we've, he's got to, he's got to get yeah. that in. Uh, George didn't want to take any more chances and I was caught in the middle. I was devastated that George Martin had his doubts about me. I came down ready to roll and heard, we've got a professional drummer. He has apologised several times since, has old George, but it was devastating. I hated the bugger for years. I still don't let him off the hook. So, yeah, like... I it, it casts a long shadow this decision. Yes. yes. I you know to to have a session drummer because um 
you know, even even uh, uh, a noted UK newspaper uh, today has been talking about, you know, oh, the Beatles used to say Ringo wasn't the best drummer in the Beatles. You know, oh, Jesus, shut the hell up. That's yes. nonsense. Yes. That's total horse duty. Uh, like, who needs any of that? Um, so, so this is kind of part of that. And, I, you know, George Martin is just trying to be pragmatic. They are recording singles in two-hour sessions. Mm. And he has had two sessions with the Beatles with different drummers. He doesn't know that they mightn't have another drummer the next time around. <laughs> yes. These guys these guys are kind of loose cannons with their drummers, it seems. They are proto-spinal tap. So he just needs to, to get the record out. And the the whole kind of how do you do it it's interesting that that goes into the rear view mirror because mm. Mitch Mitchell probably you know in retrospect in 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 September 1962 Mitch Mitchell doesn't know who the Beatles are he doesn't give a hoot he wouldn't care if the song goes somewhere else now he's only at the start of his songwriting career so it's not like that he's a a name but he feels it's a hit single and he probably would prefer it to go to somebody who's known as opposed to this group who nobody have ever heard of from Liverpool. Well, I think that, and also he didn't he didn't much care for what the Beatles had done with it in terms yeah. of the in terms of the arrangement. But I think it is it is this is one of the things that that comes out in Tune In that was really overlooked beforehand, which is the role of the publishers. Yes, um, you, you know Dick James, Ardmore, and Beechwood, the role of the publishers in how this plays out. So um, Dick James does not want this song. Hidden Away as a B-side. Mitch Murray does not want this song going, uh, you know, on a B-side, does not want it being arranged in a way that he doesn't like. So he pulls it. So suddenly Love Me Do is back on the agenda as the A-side of the first single. So it's because of the publishers that we we have a sort of a canon by the Beatles, which comprises Lennon-McCartney. You know, their very first single is a Lennon-McCartney song. Was it very easily not have been a Lennon McCartney song. And that that's that's in those I mean that was unique I would have thought. Um nowadays Absolutely. that's pretty 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 commonplace. But um uh, you know in those days you just recorded what you were told to record. Um so they go back the following week, one week later, September eleventh, that's the session where Andy White is. Yes. Uh, the 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 professional drummer. And Ringo's kind of sitting on the sidelines playing the tambourine and they go through Love Me Do eighteen times and take eighteen is the um, is the the keeper for the single. And sometimes there's a bit of discrepancy about this that Andy White was at the first session or the second session, but it's definitely fourth of September, Ringo, eleventh of September, Andy White, and it's all a bit of a nonsense, really, because both versions get used. Yes, yes, and a, a lot of this confusion seems to uh, originate or or centre on. Um uh, George Martin's book, Summer of Love, because he talks about the 6th of June session and then he says to Brian Epstein, Pete Best has to go and then I brought a professional drummer in. But but that's, that's not the way it plays out. But but yes, they end up with these different versions and then they just start chopping and changing between what yeah. comes out as a single, what, you know, so the first early pressings of the single, the one called the red Parlophone label, are the um, 4th of September version, uh, with Ringo playing drums, no tambourine, but then later pressings of the single on the black Parlophone label and the the version that turns up on the Please Please Me album are the re-recorded version with Andy White on drums and Ringo playing tambourine. So it's the tambourine is the... The tambourine it, is the signifier. It's the giveaway, if hear, yeah. If you can hear a tambourine, it's not Ringo on drums. But, but yeah, as you say, kind of, you know, the the the... the 
bit that's probably not amplified enough is that they have these two versions, Ringo on drums, Andy White on drums, and in the end they just say, okay, we'll just go with the Ringo version from the 4th of September. That is the version that comes out first. So obviously it was fine. For all of Ringo's self-effacing, I was overplaying or it was, you know, it wasn't working out. It was obviously good enough, you know? Well, yes, there does seem to have been sufficient improvement in the next version to say, right, well, we're just going to scrap the Ringo version. So the two, the two are sort of coexisting, um, which is again odd. That, that uh, you, you, but but w- one of the interesting things that I came across is that when when uh, you know it's the Andy White version that turns up on the album on the Beatles Hits EP and the first US single release, but at some point George Martin destroys the master tip. Of the Ringo version, I think at the time the Beatles hits EP is being done. All right. So, so he he at this point must be deciding. Well, we've just got to stick with one version. One version, yeah. And, yeah. and he sees the first pressings of the single as the anomaly. The Ringo version is the anomaly here. It's a pity, really. I mean, it is. As I said some tambourine aside, they're pretty. You know, it, you know. I, I have to say, a huge difference. No, I have to say, if if if, I, if you play the two of them, uh, and I wasn't paying particular attention, uh, I'm not sure I could immediately tell them apart. Um, you can is, tell the Pete Best version, though. <laughs> he's your close he said, showbiz friend. It's a skip beat. It's a, it's a skip beat. It's, it's a skip, the skip beat. beat. It's too hard. He made it too hard for himself. I I find it also very quaint that they are in the studio on the fourth of September and the eleventh of September for a single that is due out on the fifth of October. Mm. That the turnaround time from it's, studio yeah. into the actual charts, uh, into the actual shops, is three weeks there and thereabouts. So that's pretty fast. Mm. That is pretty fast. There's no vinyl shortage then. So no. if you want to hear the Ringo version now, it is now the Past Masters version of Love Me Do is where mm-hmm. the Ringo Love Me Do lives, if anybody wants it. It's it's still, there was still the controversy over the, the 2012 50th anniversary, wasn't there, where they, they mixed up the that, versions. That, that's a strange yes. thing. How can that happen? So it was ready to go uh, on the 5th of October for the 2012, for the anniversary, and then they suddenly realised... Oh, oh we, we've used the wrong version. We've used the Andy White version. They had to pull it back, and then it didn't come out until the twenty second of October. So they missed. And you think, how can that happen? It's the Beatles. You know, does nobody yeah. nobody paying any attention to this? Once no. again, I know you're throwing your hat in the ring for Apple Archivist and yes. release coordinator. Um, the uh, the song, um, you know, John writes to Astrid. Kirscher just a few weeks after the single comes out and says, oh, it's good, but it's not good enough, which I kind of like the fact that he's never That's, happy and he's disappointed from the start. That is really interesting. That, uh, that, 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 that was something I hadn't read before where he's saying, yeah, it's good, but it's not good enough. And again, the, it, it's that idea that comes out in the Lewis and show that they are driving forward. Yeah. That already, you know, they've recorded their first single, but already they're moving on. They're moving past that. Please, please me is is kind of in the pipeline, and they're already looking ahead to the next single. Um, and you know, in 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 a way that my Bonnie didn't uh, reappear later in their career. Love Me Do does reappear. You know, they 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 play it in nineteen sixty eight in White Album sessions. They played in sixty nine during, you know, the the, the Get Back sessions. Um, you know, and we. Pointed out there that Paul did record his own B-side version, so it's a <sighs> song that they're they're proud of. Um, can we can we, ta- f- can we talk about the Paul B-side version? Yeah, go on then. It's awful. It might it, 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 it might genuinely be the worst thing he's ever done. 
I think that's totally true. So just for a recap on the off chance you don't know what we're talking about, in um, 1990, uh, Paul did a song called P.S. Love Me Do, which was a mashup, even years before mashup became a thing, of Love Me Do and its B-side P.S. I Love You, which I first saw um, in 1990 on the John Lennon tribute, that very strange John Lennon yes. tribute concert uh, about May 1990 from the Liverpool Docks, which um, Sean and Yoko were at introducing Kylie Minogue and all sorts of strange acts. And Paul sends this video and Ringo sends some Carl Perkins proto Wilbury stuff yeah. to this concert. And, and, and George doesn't bother to turn up. George doesn't bother to turn anything. up. Um, but P.S. Love Me Do is atrocious and I was a very early days Beatles fan at the time and I'd enjoyed Flowers in the Dirt and I thought that was all great but I remember seeing that thinking that is purely that's pure embarrassment that song that video it's awful you can look it up on YouTube it came out as a b-side um I think for the birthday single he was put it he was playing it in his live set oh yeah it was in his live set on the Flowers in the Dirt tour it's just crazy Uh, Crazy. I don't. I, I. I. don't remember that. I think it must have. Unless I. Just, I think it was the later sessions. Yeah. I don't think it was on the UK leg. I think it was when he was yeah. in South America or something. So I think. I think that's. That's. I, I. have to say. I think that would have scarred me for life. My first time seeing a Beatle <laughs> if he'd done that because it's. 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 It's clunky. Yo, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's dated. So, so it's, dated. But of course, of course, these are the two songs at that time that Paul owned the copyright. Yeah. Exactly. Because these were not Northern songs, they're yeah. pre-Northern songs formation, Paul was able to own the songs. And because he owned the songs, he, I don't know, his logic, I guess, was just to sort of reinvigorate them, to turn them into a brand new Lennon-McCartney song that he would own the publishing on forever. Well, it's like uh, <laughs> it, it's like the Bee Gees saying, you know, once we've done our version of Sgt. Pepper, people will forget about the original. <laughs> so he, he probably thought, well... You know, we'll just we'll just contemporaneize these songs, and uh, yeah. So be yeah. warned. Stay, stay, stay clear, kids. H- hubris is a hell of a drug. Um, it's uh, but you know, the, the there's an interesting footnote that um, because Paul owns the publishing for Love Me Do, you have to ask his permission if you want to perform it. Have we um, got his permission to perform it? Is this what you're well, going to reveal? We're about to. I don't. Uh, I don't have his permission. But um, are you aware, Stephen, of a show called The Masked Singer? I am aware of this in the background. In theory, I have never ever seen an episode. Okay, um, The Masked Singer is excellent television. <laughs> it's for people. It's for people wear insanely elaborate costumes and they sing in front of judges and judges have to guess who is under the costume and at the end of the show they shout take it off and they take off the head and you go oh my god it's you know John Craven amazing and um, but recently on the American version of The Masked Singer uh, somebody had to write to Paul for permission to sing um, Love Me Do and Paul granted permission um, and do you know who this person was Stephen? You probably don't if you're not a Masked it, Singer fan. It wasn't uh, Ringo Starr was it? It was not Ringo Starr uh, it was Eric Idle. Eric Idle was ah. under the costume. I think he was a hedgehog or something I can't remember. Um, Doug quickly. Well, I thought it was a nice bit of Ruttles crossover that Dirk had to write a letter to say, hi Paul, how are you doing? And Eric's 
backstory is that three years ago he had surgery for pancreatic cancer and he's only gone public with it in the last two or three uh, months. And this was his return to performing, was to go on the the masked singer and sing Love Me Do uh, with written permission from Paul. So Paul did put out a very coy tweet to say, a certain friend of mine is singing a certain song tonight and wish him the best of luck, you know. And and did you recognise that it was Eric Idle? I did not. And um, I did... I did watch it not knowing it was Eric Idle. I watched the YouTube clip trying to figure it out myself, but I, I did not know it was Eric. That is the, the joy of the masked singer, Stephen. The reveals are just spectacular. You know, you don't know yeah, who's... Yeah. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I shall I shall take your take your word for it. But it is interesting oh. that Paul has obviously forgiven him for Dark McQuickly and the... Because Paul wasn't happy, wasn't too pleased. Oh, uh, we know Paul is the least ruttle-friendly Beatle. Yes, um, and it, so, uh, suppose, supposedly it was Linda that, that sort of broke the ice, uh, you know, after Eric Idle and Paul met after the ruttles, and she she was sort of making some comment, but uh, that's nice. That is nice. Well, the, the other thing you, you mentioned, Ringo, there, Ringo has done a version of Love Me Do, a solo version of Love Me yes, Do. Yes, yes, and he's, uh, so it's on uh, uh, Vertical Man. I don't know if that's probably an album you play on a regular basis. Uh, oh yeah, definitely, absolutely. Yeah, it's okay, Vertical Man. Yeah, it's fine, and uh, it features Steven Tyler from Aerosmith, my favorite. Your favorite, band. you love Aerosmith. I love Aerosmith. <laughs> um, all, I saw all the guilty saw, pleasures are getting made. I today. saw Paul McCartney, The Rolling Stones, and Aerosmith within a space of eight days. And you know who the best was? Paul McCartney. Yes, again. <laughs> Rolling Stones. Guess again. It was Aerosmith. Aerosmith. The oh, baby of Paul good. McCartney and the Rolling Stones. They were so good. They were so good. But yeah, so he, and it is, you, there was a sense of um, Ringo sort of reclaiming the song. You know, he made yes. it, he makes that point, you know, that this is my version of Love Me Do. I think he's done it live as well. Um, yeah, and there is, you know, rumours of a Threetles version of Love Me Do. Yes, this is interesting. So when, when they all got together at George's house, uh, nice motor, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they, 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 there's some footage of, of them playing and it seems to be Love Me Do. So you think that would be, that would be quite interesting. Mm. Paul could take that and mash it up with something else. <laughs> Guys, oh. I've done something with Love Me Do. You're gonna, yeah. It's going to blow oh. your minds. That would be bad. Oh. That would be bad. So yeah, yeah. But I mean, that, 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 that would be interesting. That would be interesting. Um, so, Love Me Do, yeah, it, it's 60 years since it came out. I wonder when was the 60th anniversary of people hearing it for the first time? Because the, the, the nice thing, if we're tying this all up again, is that as Mark Lewison was revealing the story of 1962, he talks about how, you know, sometimes we look at Love Me Do and think, oh, it only got to 17 in the mm. charts and, you know, oh, you know, Brian was involved somewhere. But... Mark Lewison makes the point that this was a song that went up the charts in consecutive weeks after it came out for the last, you know, 10 or 12 weeks of 1962. So yes. it didn't just come in at 17. It had a slow build and people started noticing. So, you know, they do we know when the first play was? We know that the Beatles played it on radio themselves. Yes, yes. I, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know when the first time you would have heard this on, on the radio would have been. Um but the, the the thing is, it it didn't sound like anything else at the time. Yeah. That's the point. So if we, you know, the point I was making about, um, you know, my Bonnie, you could play that on the radio beside Alma Cogan or 
uh, Helen Shapiro or any of those uh, songs that were happening at the time. And it, you, it wouldn't stand out. This stands out. You know, this is different. This is kind of gritty. This is a northern, yeah. this is a northern song. This is, this sounds unlike anything. It's not Cliff and the Shadows. It's, it's not Cliff and the Shadows. And Cliff um, and the Shadows are what is number one in the album charts. And they are, yeah. there's, there's a fantastic 1962 Cliff and the Shadows live album, which has Beatlemania screaming on it. If you, mm. you know, the Beatles didn't invent crowds and screaming. Um, but yeah, this is the first part of the next thing. You can you can hear it evolve on the 142 seconds of Love Me Do. Can I can I give you my uh, Cliff fun fact, Tony Sheridan fact? Oh, go on. That uh, Tony Sheridan was intended to be the, the uh, guitar player in The Shadows. And oh. um, Cliff's producer went down to the Two Eyes uh, Coffee Club or whatever it was called uh, in, in Old Compton Street to get him. And he wasn't there. So oh. he, he, he went with another uh, guitar player by the name of Hank Marvin. Good old Hank Marvin. So there you go. Um, so Tony Sheridan, Tony Sheridan, uh, can, I, can I just keep giving you fun facts about... Okay, give me more. Hit, hit me up with Tony Sheridan facts. Tony Sheridan uh, toured with um, Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran in 1960 okay. and uh, asked, could he have a lift in their car to the next venue? Uh-oh. Uh, and uh, they said no. And uh, that was the car. That was the uh, the car accident that injured Gene Vincent and killed um, Eddie, Eddie Cochran. Cochran. Yep. Oh my lord! Gosh, so there you go. Uh, you my last, my last fun fact about Tony Sheridan. Go on. He is a an honorary captain in the U.S. Army. Okay, or was I guess I was. Yes, he died in 2013. He he toured in Vietnam to entertain the troops. And wow. w- one of his band was shot by the Viet Cong. <laughs> while they were playing? Well, I don't know why they were, they were playing, around. but while, while, while they were there and he, he was Do shot. Do my body! Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was probably it. Um, and, and best of all, he wrote a song with Paul McCartney. Now, tell us about that. Well, there's a song written in June 1961 or December 1962, depending on you know, yeah. who you believe. And it's called uh, "Tell Me If You Can," and it okay. was not it was not recorded until 1997, and supposedly by Tony Sheridan, and supposedly Paul blocked this song from coming out in 1997. Uh, but it then was officially released in 2005 on a CD, which I do not have, called "Chantal Meets Tony Sheridan," which sounds like one of those movies that uh, you know. <laughs> yes. Well, anyway, uh, that your mother Sh- warned you about. But Chantal is uh, is actually the name of a band. Um, but and it's given the writing credit McCartney Sheridan, and we can put a link up to a YouTube. Yeah, it it, it is on YouTube. It's a pretty little song, and Tony's got a nice voice. Actually, you know, it's uh, it's kind of nice to hear him removed from the the hoopla of Beatledom. Well, if you if you get a chance to see the complete Beatles, you know the. Available oh, yes. on Laserdisc. Yeah, he, he he is on that, and he look he is so cool. Yes, being interviewed, and in, in, that must be sort of the late seventies because he was recording with Elvis's band in nineteen seventy eight. He yeah, recorded yeah. an entire album with the Taking Care of Business band and Klaus Vormann, and again another album that just didn't didn't 
see the light of day. Uh, I think it was one of those TV only uh, albums. You know, Morris Levy probably involved in some way, but. Um, so yeah, it, yeah, but he's he's I, I, incredibly cool guy in the late seventies. He's he's very very cool, and I, I I know we mentioned the complete Beatles in our first um, anthology, the Road to Anthology episode. Mm. Uh, it, it, the complete Beatles is just amazing. It has this thing like you know the the world at war where it's yes it's recorded at a point in time where everybody's still young and fresh faced and remembers what happened. But uh, Tony Sheridan is a highlight of the complete Beatles. So. To, to wrap up our celebration of October the 5th, International Beatles Day, and it was 60 years ago today. So to end our celebration of it was 60 years ago today, there's probably a, there's a nice little anecdote related to Aunt Mimi, who was privy to hearing Love Me Do before the rest of the world. What was her take on Love Me Do? Yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this quote. It's a very Aunt Mimi quote. If you think you're going to make a fortune with that, you've got another thing coming. Nice. Very she's supportive. A, a very supportive, always encouraging. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so, first of all, that's a little bit short-sighted, to say the least. Yes. It, 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 this is the song that was ultimately going to lead to her getting a lovely new bungalow. So, <laughs> yes. Um, you know. And when John was recording the song... Chances are he was also using the same guitar to play to Aunt Mimi. He was playing a 1962 Gibson J160E. Now, I'm, I'm not up, I'm, I like guitars, but I'm not up on my gear fetish. No. I'm, not, I'm not totally abrupt on this. But this is a, a guitar that they use a lot for gigging in 62, 63. Yes, and I think George and John had sort of a pair or they had a matching set. Uh, but it disappeared in December 1963. It was uh, stolen. Um, after mm. the Finsbury Park Christmas show and uh, just completely disappeared for 50 years. Until? Until an amateur guitarist called John McCaw discovered that he had it. Um, he had bought this uh, in the late 1960s, not knowing there was any any connection. Mm. All these things have kind of serial numbers and, and, and what have you. Um, so he did what any amateur guitarist would do and... Um, Put it up for auction in November 2015. And uh, you're not going to make a fortune with that, said Aunt Mimi. Yeah, and the guitar sold at auction for $2.41 million. So there you go. Even so there if the, you go. Even if there was no royalties coming in. Yeah, uh, the guitar would have made money. Yes. I mean, maybe Aunt Mimi could see into the future and realise that Paul would own the publishing and, and not John. That's probably what that's she was probably it. To. That she, Paul would own the publishing and somebody else would sell the guitar. She's she, oh, she was more clear sighted than we are giving her credit for. <laughs> um, oh, but there you go. Love me do. It was sixty years ago today. I think uh, I think we've done October the fifth justice. Shall we do the I same so. thing again next year? Yeah, see you this same time next year. <laughs> no, I'm sure we'll be back before that. Um, but we remain available in all the usual places. We're on Twitter at BeatlesPod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, 7,000 members and, and growing strong. And the, the website, www.nothingisrealpod.com, where you can see the links to the other bits and pieces that we've done and the other social media platforms that we don't really engage with as much as Twitter and Facebook. But we'll be there if you want to chat to us about 1962. And uh, happy birthday, love me do. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. Um, uh, for Nothing Is Real, my name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.